Hey everyone, it's Clarissa here from the Thriving Through Menopause podcast. You know, as I talk to women around the world, I know that more than ever, we're looking for holistic ways to manage our menopause and to feel empowered that we're in control of our own health and healing during this vital life transition. I sit down each week with amazing guests to talk about ideas, strategies, approaches and opportunities to help us thrive through menopause. Episodes drop every Tuesday, so I hope that you'll join us. And I have a little request for you, that if you find value from the stories, lessons and wisdom that we share, I'd like you to support this podcast. One way you can do that is to hop on to wherever you listen to podcasts, like and subscribe and share it so that others can hear the messages too. You might want to buy me a coffee to help me keep this podcast up and running. And I'd love you to subscribe to my newsletter, Heart of Menopause, over on Substack. Don't forget, episodes drop every Tuesday and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being part of this community, listening to this podcast, and I hope that you enjoy the new content that's coming up in this new season. Welcome to this week's episode of Thriving Through Menopause with me, Clarissa, and I'm delighted to have somebody who is such an authority on menopause and hormones to join me, and she is Dr. Angela DeRosa. Welcome to Thriving Through Menopause. Thank you so much, Clarissa. I'm delighted to be here today. Well, I think it's just wonderful because I am so looking forward to talking to you. I mean, you have had so much experience on the pharmaceutical side, on the clinical side. You are obviously somebody who has founded your own practice in integrative health and, Mm -hmm. and, and wellness. You've been through an early menopause, so you have experience at 35 of what that first yeah yes i understand what my patients are going through truly. Indeed. and of course you have written a book which had a very controversial title which i'm going to read as how your doctor is slowly killing you a woman's health survival guide about that got lots of woo <laughs> Yeah, let's just say, like, some of my colleagues don't have a good sense of humor, (laughs) but they'll get over it. It wasn't written for them, so. Indeed, indeed. I mean, there is a lot that we could talk about, but one of the areas that I would love to have a bit of a depth conversation is this whole space of antidepressants, and um, one of the reasons we're still saying You know, people are being told it's all in your head. Why in 2023 is this still a conversation? Well, and and I'm going to have a fairly long-winded answer, so forgive me up front for that, but it's a very complex question, actually. And what really it boils down to is the incredible gender bias that still exists in medicine today and the treatment of women. And although antidepressants are wonderful drugs when used appropriately and they can be life-saving, the problem is is that many women have been pigeonholed as depressed when sometimes nothing can be further from the truth. Well, they may have the symptoms of depression, but it's not a chemical imbalance which those drugs are meant to um, treat. And let me kind of back up. So typically when women are in their teens and 20s, if they start to develop a 
mania, depression, anxiety, panic, any one of the mood disorders or um, or mental health disorders that, that can exist, that is often a, a shared chemical imbalance that requires treatment with medications, including antidepressants. Not in all cases, but in most. And But when women start to present, say, in their late 30s, early 40s, and 50s with those types of disorders, most often it's due to hormonal imbalances. And in per- so estrogen deficiency can lead to moodiness, weepiness, kind of that sensitivity. But what people often don't think about, even in the medical profession, is that women start to lose their testosterone in their mid-30s, and it's our most abundant hormone. And how testosterone deficiency presents is exactly how it presents in men. We get moody, depressed, panicked, anxious. We can have frank suicidal ideation and most commonly just plain simple apathy. Also, when we become testosterone deficient, we get muscle aches and pains, our libido goes to non-existent. We get migraine headaches. We start to gain weight in the midsection, which further worsens our mood and our body image shame that we often pile on ourselves. And we become insulin resistant, which leads to all of the cardiovascular risks, including diabetes, heart attack, stroke. So imagine now for a second, a patient walks into a doctor's office complaining of, I don't, I am moody, I'm panicking, I'm anxious for the first time in my life, I have muscle aches and pains, I, I just don't feel like myself, I don't have libido or enjoyment anymore in life. If a man presents with those symptoms, they are going to be evaluated for testosterone deficiency and likely put on hormones and before they even go down the path of mental health disorders. If a woman presents with those exact same complaints, they're going to be either told they have depression or fibromyalgia, which is even worse, and they're put on antidepressants and all kinds of other things when when they ultimately need the same thing as men do, testosterone. And what's really alarming is that people don't realize testosterone is the most abundant hormone that women produce in our reproductive years. We actually make more of it than we do estradiol but it's not respected in our healthcare. No, absolutely. I, I mean, when we hear it talked about, if we ever, and it's only, I would say, in the last two or three years that I've heard it mentioned within menopausal circles, before that, it's just been estrogen, estrogen. Oh, yeah, progesterone. We, we kind of half forget about that <laughs> one. Oh, yeah, that one. And then, obviously, never any mention. And then we started to see women, obviously, being diagnosed, but mostly for libido. Uh, issues and and that's it but now I think there is certainly science being talked about with respect to testosterone but then over here there's a mismatch between the guidelines that are there for the North American or British menopause or other menopause society and and it's honestly a travesty because when the unfortunate thing is that a lot of those guidelines are being driven by involvement of big pharmaceutical companies. And there is a billion-dollar industry that wants to keep us unwell, including not having the ability. Because if we go and get our hormones, we're not going to need sleep meds, antidepressants, cholesterol meds, weight loss drugs. I mean, the whole kit and caboodle. So there's an investment by the big pharma, and they use these societies, and they use these guidelines that come out of those societies. Most of their funding comes from pharmaceutical companies. So they are definitely highly conflicted. The other thing that we have to, and when we talk specifically about the guidelines of women and testosterone and why it got pigeonholed to sexual function is because um, 
back in the day, I actually worked at Procter & Gamble when we were attempting to launch a female testosterone patch in the U.S. And when, when you start to understand big pharma and how they try to get drugs to market, they always want to take the path of least resistance and the one that is most likely to get us approved for that drug. So now if they went to try to get approval for menopause, it's such a complex thing that there's so many variables to it. So they said, well, that's going to be very challenging to prove. But if we know testosterone specifically can affect libido in women, so let's go after that target, which is what they did. And actually, they proved that it worked. But it didn't focus on all the other reasons and things that testosterone affects because it became too complicated. So that's why the libido issue really became the target, where what's so interesting on the male side, they never even had to do randomized control studies to get their testosterone approved for them. But yet we have zero products approved for us here in the United States. And it's, it's again, it's that gender bias. And you have these, these guidelines that are coming out by very conservative organizations that have been fed a lot of misinformation and are highly conflicted. And the people that are large, when you start to read the testosterone and women guideline, if you look at, it's really based on very little evidence. A lot of it is expert opinion, expert opinion. Well, depending on who you sub in as that expert, that opinion could change. But there's another other great study that's out, uh, an article that was printed by multiple clinicians worldwide that specialize in women's care and testosterone in women. And they had hundreds of and thousands of um, probably 10,000 plus years of patient experience collectively showing the benefits of testosterone in women, including libido, but oh yeah, improvement in breast cancer risk, improvement in cardiovascular risk, and kind of all going insulin resistance reduction, all those various things. But it's ignored and it's purposefully ignored because we don't want women to get well. And for that matter, we don't want men to get well either because, but they are been a louder voice and they've gotten what they want. Yeah, and, it, and the erectile dysfunction drugs are served them. Of too. course. Even though it would kill them. God forbid we get chin here, but we kill them. That's, That's okay. okay. But I mean, I think there's that kind of natural kind of public dialogue testosterone equals male, maleness. Yeah. So there's a kind of like, you know, pattern to understanding that. But I, I mean, well, and it started in the 40s, yeah. actually, when they were named the naming the different molecules and the sex hormone. And they decided, well, estradiol, we're going to assign to the, that's the feminine, uh, that's women. And then testosterone became the male, which did a disservice for the complete understanding of those molecules. Because men actually make estrogens, yeah, too. But it's just yeah. very small amount where we're more evenly balanced. Yeah, really. That, and that's so interesting. So so women appear here with all these depressive symptoms because testosterone has a big role in the brain, doesn't it, with respect to anxiety right. and depressive. It upregulates. It's mother nature serotonin. Uh, it upregulates serotonin. So not, oh, interestingly, only 5% of our serotonin receptors are in the brain. The other 95 are in the gut, which also leads to IBS symptoms, which also kind of further validates, quote unquote, the depression because they must be anxious and depressed if they have IBS symptoms, and that's just another way the body presents. But what's even, to me, one of the most alarming things that are going on with all it, in addition to the antidepressants, but in young women, it becomes also a cascade toward uh, antidepressants because of birth control pills. All birth control pills cause a 100% testosterone deficiency in women. So can you imagine, you now have women who want to protect their reproductive rights, which I understand, but there are unintended consequences of that. 
that 100% testosterone deficiency that is developed. And women are as early as their teens and 20s that are, we have hundreds of thousands to millions of women on birth control pills who are developing testosterone deficiency symptoms, which present like depression, which now they're on an antidepressant when if they would just change their birth control option or add testosterone back to it, we wouldn't need that. But we have a young generation who are running around depressed and anxious and all these different symptoms. And I know social media and a lot of other social constructs are not helping that. But you can't tell me the birth control pills aren't contributing to it. No. I mean, I've, I mean, we've known for quite a while that taking birth control pills can definitely impact our moods. But this is the first time I've anybody said that to me. Oh, it could be a testosterone. So there must be absolutely tons of women out there who have oh, testosterone no, yes. issues. No, yes. and, then, and then, of course, that gets compounded when we go into perimenopause when you may still be taking a birth control pill. Whoa. Yeah, exactly. Oh. It just makes it even worse. Oh, that's, just, that's just a revelation in itself for me. I'm like, <laughs> now it yeah. make a lot of things just start to fall into place. And, of course, we're seeing, I thought I saw the latest figures for antidepressants in here around the world. I mean, it was just massive. It's like, it's much, it used to be one oh, in 10. I think it looks more like four in 10 people. And the majority oh, yeah. of women, I mean, just, oh, just a shocker. When you start to look at the general population, I mean, you could just start asking all your friends and neighbors, and I would imagine you're pretty close to 40%, if not more. Yeah. But women are taking those, especially as we get older, because they assign the symptoms of perimenopause to depression, and nothing can be further than truth. They need estrogen, testosterone, and maybe testosterone. So, so women are here now, they're getting fogged off because most of them still are, particularly if you're under whatever mythical age that it is, we seem to say. So we say things like, oh, well, you're not 49 or whatever it is. And they're on there, but they're not getting testosterone. How are we going to change that situation for women, Angela? Because this is not uh, sustainable in the way that it is. The women's health. No, well, and and sometimes you have to wonder: is it designed to kind of really take us out as a power-driven force in society? If you want to get cynical and start thinking about conspiracy theories, but it really is going to require first off education, not only with the, the patients themselves, but the physicians who are treating them. And and what's really unfortunate, and what I've seen evolve over the last twenty-five years as I've been treating women, and for a while, it appeared it was getting better, but it, then it got much worse when this horrible study came out that wasn't even accurate and was so badly portrayed, which, in my opinion, that 2002 Women's Health Initiative negatively impacted women's health. Probably it's going to be a century before we even get that corrected. But here you have patients who are demanding more, which is one of the things these younger women I'm really respectful of is that they're not accepting status quo. They want more from physicians, and they're doing their own research, and they're demanding better of us, which in, in turn should hopefully drive more empowerment of at least maybe the physicians starting to look and say, well, maybe I need to look at this. But there's a huge pushback by the conventional side to clinicians like myself who specialize in these areas because they think they know the data, although they only have a very minuscule amount of understanding of the endocrine system and the data that's really out there. But they'll, they'll instead of really doing the research themselves, they'll just dismiss it. And then they often think that people like myself are heretics. We don't know what we're talking about when, in fact, I mean, I've been studying this area of medicine for 25 years. I think I have a fairly good knowledge base on this, but certainly much better than the average clinician. 
And the, the good news is that even through my training institute, which I have the Hormonal Health Institute, we're training physicians largely in the U.S., but we have now have global clients. But that's what it's going to take. It's going to take the patients getting educated and demanding more, and then finding the physicians who can then care for them, which luckily that side's growing. But I'm telling you, Clarissa, we still have a long way to we go. We have. I mean, I've been listening to the dialogue around testosterone emerging and seeing how very prominent uh, science, scientific women, women who are leading in the in the clinical area, clinical research area, are so anti-testosterone it's unbelievable and yet the the evidence that they produce isn't anything really there are no significant yeah, that's studies that's so alarming is they've got well they've got a good platform through some of these quote-unquote reputable societies but again you have to always look for conflicts of interest and a lot of those people have been paid by pharmaceutical industries to run their own studies and and what's really difficult, too, is to, in order to run really large randomized clinical trials, you need a lot of money to do that and, and time and resource. And your average physicians, although we may collect a lot of really positive data, but unless it's done in a randomized controlled trial, often that observational data is dismissed. And, it, and really the only people that can afford those are the pharmaceutical companies. So they're almost self-creating their own self-serving data sets to prove their point, while everybody else gets disregarded when we have hundreds of years, or not hundreds, we have a decade, or excuse me, a century or more, like back in the 30s and 40s, pellet therapy for women and testosterone and estradiol were, was very prevalent and starting. And we've got all this wonderful data, but somehow, some way, these folks seem to want to ignore it because it proves their point. So, unfortunately... And I'm not to say that big pharma is bad altogether. I mean, I, there's a lot of great benefits that come out of these companies, but I've seen behind the scenes and I know how it works that they can manipulate data they want. They have the money and the power and control to exploit the area and create the data that skews people's minds and particular physicians. And if they don't take the time and energy to really learn what's out there, of course they're going to believe what the message is they're getting. And patients will too because fear sells yeah. and it's unfortunate. Yeah. So really now women are left with not getting testosterone on the whole. I mean, if you were to go to your clinician and, and ask for it, you would not get it, certainly not in the UK, not in Europe. I think Australia is the only place where there is prescription. Well, they have a, they finally have a testosterone gel they approved for women in, in the Australian um, country of Australia. But there's actually a really great woman, uh, Louise Newsom, who's out in the UK who is prescribing uh, testosterone for women. And there are physicians that are doing it, but they are either resorted to having to use male products in female doses, which unfortunately not very a good option, but it's the only option they may have. Here in the U.S., at least we have compounding pharmacies that are filling the gap. So if they can end up at a physician's office that has the understanding, we have a mechanism to fill that aside from using men's products. We can compound creams. We can compound um, injectables. There's compounded uh, pellet therapy, which I specialize in, and trophies and sublingual. So there's a whole bunch of compounding options as long as we're able to continue to compound here in the U.S., but that's been under attack by big pharma as well. Oh, yes. yes. But, yeah, so so we're left with very little choices where men have lots and lots of choices. And it's, it's really alarming to me. I mean, it, 
some people stockpile weapons. I stockpile testosterone. <laughs> I'm worried one day it's going to be taken away from me and put a gun to my head. The hormone I want is testosterone. Wow. <laughs> so, so I think how do how does this change? I mean, how does this change the situation? Because clearly, women need this. One strategy is obviously for women to reconsider their birth control, and that's obviously a complicated conversation given what is happening in the US and many other parts of the world around you know, unplanned pregnancy conversations. Well, one of the best options for women are the progesterone IEDs like Marina, Liveta, Kylina, because it's, it basically creates a hostile environment. It doesn't shut the ovaries down from functioning, so the patients will have their own natural hormonal balance. So that it becomes a good option. Um, and again, you can use the birth control pills if that's the contraceptive option you want to do, but then you need someone who can help you rebalance around that, give you back the testosterone on top of it. And really, I mean, when, to go back to one of your earlier comment on that question is that what we really need to do is get our voices heard. So writing our, our senators and congressmen and representatives of parliament, whoever you are, um, and making sure that our voices are heard. And nothing would make me happier to have like a hot flash march on <laughs> some of these big powers and engaging our representatives. And now that those, a lot of those representatives and females are more in power and they have, they're going to start seeing a lot of more of the symptomology and educating and maybe getting them involved. But I work with a group called Menopause Mandate and they've been very, very active in the UK and they're now finally starting to, um, work here in the U.S. and starting to expand those things. So working with organizations like that or Save My Compounds here in the U.S., it's a really good organization that's working with the Alliance for Compounding Pharmacy to help us, at least if big pharma is not going to make it, at least protect our right to get it on the compounding side. So I think it's about awareness and educating yourself and then becoming vocal and demanding it because it's, it's so insidiously trying to be taken away from us in so many ways that we have to really start to get our voices heard but unfortunately there's a lot of apathy in, in until it becomes a until it becomes a problem and I, I mean i would have thought by now given the rate of women's heart disease i mean it's the number one killer now isn't it of women worldwide we are seeing so many other things so much weight well all the things are related to heart disease the diabetes yeah, high levels of taking high blood pressure, diabetes medication, cholesterol medication, so many things, as well as the quality of our lives, that we must see a shift. So, yeah. Well, and here's the the thing that just is so maddening to me. And I'm, I'm an internal medicine doctor by training, and I love my hormones, and we talk about the quality of life, but they're so instrumental in preventing heart disease. So let's just take that thought process for a second, is that you have, as we discussed, testosterone deficiency leading to insulin resistance, which leads to increase in visceral fat and diabetes, and then it goes down that cardiovascular path. Estrogen deficiency is going to lead to the hardening of the endothelium on the inside of our blood vessels, which is going to lead to hypertension, which is going to lead to that path. Estrogen and thyroid uh, are, will affect our metabolism and our ability to control cholesterol properly. So all of those hormones, they're essential for cardiovascular health. And once they go away, we're just aging rapidly. And the insides of our bodies are just, we're setting up a, a whole milieu that's putting us at risk. And we don't need all those. I mean, the majority of people, if they just would be properly hormone balanced, maybe exercised a bit, ate a little bit better, a lot of these folks wouldn't be on the medications that we have doling out left and right, like candy. 
which is kind of comes to the point of my book is that and I, I don't think doctors are intentionally killing people. I, it was kind of a, to draw attention and to say it in jest. But if they don't have the proper knowledge about how hormones affect those things, they're going to just keep handing out more and more medication while we do a slow march to death and nobody's getting better. And in fact, it's making us sick. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very common to go and stand in a pharmacy and just see people walk away with bags of medication that they actually don't need. And I, I mean, sure, we could all exercise, eat better. We we all need to build a foundation in our health. But there's a mismatch when you speak to clinicians that if we just did those things, it's somehow that if you fix that, it'll be fixed. And there's never a conversation from someone who specializes say in heart health that you might benefit from hormones that they don't make the link yeah, and that's what's so unfortunate is that you as physicians we berate our patients and it's so unfair we say go eat better exercise more but here's the kicker if you have testosterone deficiency you're going to be wiped out from your workouts you're, you're not going to even have insulin resistance which makes it difficult to control your sugars you're going to have more cravings so you have this whole setup or if you're thyroid deficient your metabolism's low your body doesn't have the proper tools to actually achieve the results that it needs to do if you were to engage in that path. So most patients, they try, and then they fail miserably, and they're frustrated. So my clinics, when we treat our patients, they say, okay, I am not, even if you need to lose 100 pounds, I am not going to berate you about any of that <laughs> until I get your thyroid, your testosterone, and anything else that's going on under control so your body then has the tools. Then you're going to have to step up to the plate. But it's insane to suggest to go do that when your body is missing great physiologic tools to achieve it. Yeah. And, it, and roughly when somebody goes and has the right hormone balance, how quickly do they see that turnaround? Oh, I mean, patients usually within the first month start to feel tremendously better. But then it takes a little time for all those receptors to upregulate. So we, all of our hormonal receptors are kind of like little flowers. If we miss our hormones, the flowers die. But then once we reestablish that, the receptors start to come back. Then you start to see repair and healing in the body, which can take on average three, six, maybe nine, 12 months to have that full process really re-engage. And then you start to see the endothelium softening. You start to see the bone health improving. The insulin resistance goes away very quickly. Um, once, Usually when I place testosterone pellets in my patients, if they come in with, say, an elevated hemoglobin A1C, which is the blood test we check for insulin resistance, if it's abnormal, within a month it starts to normalize. And it's it happens very quickly. Now, the weight loss isn't going to be as fast. It may take three, six, nine months if you're putting in the work. But at least we see that physiologic effect correct itself. And when you, once that occurs, then the body's set up in a much better fashion. That That's amazing, really, isn't it? Because then we can see beginning to move away from the high blood pressure meds or these statins, which nobody really wants yeah, to be taking thing, and antidepressants. And people report feeling I've got more energy, more drive, I'm more motivated, which given we've got 50 more years to live possibly post-menopause is, is pretty oh, wonderful. I know. Yeah. yeah, it absolutely is. And you're absolutely, I mean, it's so cool when about, and usually if patients were started on antidepressants or a lot of these meds, like in, in the perimenopausal years, I'm almost 100% certain I can get them off of a lot of those meds. Once I give them the tools and then I just start weaning them off the meds, and they don't need them. Unless there's something 
so for instance, if someone has a passing of a spouse and there's an immediate grief reaction, I mean, certainly giving proper balance of hormones is not going to magically make that disappear and you may need those antidepressants during those short periods of time. But they shouldn't be lifelong meds to control symptoms of hormone deficiency. No. And, and once people go on to those sort of uh, dosages of testosterone in pellet form, is that then something that continues for life? As far as I'm concerned, as long as a patient has any quality of life that has meaning, they should be on hormone therapies because it's what keeps us young and vital and physiologically useful. So why wouldn't we continue those? The second we stop them is when we run into trouble. So this whole concept of shortest time, shortest duration, lowest dose is actually physiologically um, nonsensical. So we need to keep those physiologically active until... If some, but until let's say I have a patient who had a major stroke or became has Alzheimer's dementia, and they're living in a nursing home. I mean, maybe at that point, it may want to stop them. But even then, it would probably even help them to some degree. But if it's the quality of life is so gone, then it, then that's when I would definitely stop. But as long as I have lots of eighty-year-old women who are out there playing pickleball and having the time of their life and they're getting all their hormones and having sex and enjoying themselves. Yeah. That's, uh, and that is, sounds so good. I mean, it sounds so vibrant and like, <laughs> yes, give that to me. But you know, yeah. but there is still such a, a distant goal for way too many women. And I think that's, that's a tragedy. Yeah, it is. It's really, that's what's, it's it, actually, if you stop thinking about it, it makes me so angry. And that's why all I can do is fight the fight that I have in me to help change the paradigm. But we need more of us. <laughs> we need a lot more of us getting engaged and educated. We do. And, I, and I'm really grateful for you for coming here and, and just opening a window to conversation, which I still feel relatively, you know, uneducated in because it's not in the mainstream. At least now we're getting more understanding on estrogen and progesterone. But this, this is just mystery. <laughs> And I'm just so delighted that you're hosting podcasts like this and educating them. And that's people like you are a part of the army of fight, that we're fighting and being ambassadors for everything. Yeah. So we're going to be. It oh, takes a village, takes, even in this. I think it takes a big village, and we have to have big stakes. I think <laughs> big marching, get out there, and and really understand. And I think question when people are pushing back if they don't have the evidence. Um, you know, how is that going to change and how are we going to make a difference to women's lives? Because the quality of women's lives post-menopause isn't, isn't what it could be. No, not at all. And I always tell patients and and even my friends or people I talk to that often ask me for advice when I'm traveling, and I'm like, trust your instincts, trust yourself. Women are smart. We intuitively know when something's wrong and when we're getting a bullshit answer <laughs> Just and being patronized or pat on the head and tell them, Keep saying if you walk into a physician's office or a nurse practitioner, whoever you're seeing, and you're treated demeaning and patronistic, or your questions are just being shoved aside, you need to seek somebody else because there there aren't good answers, and um, you just need to find the right practitioner to work with and trust your instincts. Is your right? Absolutely. How can people get in contact with you, Angela, and get copies of your book and and get the help they need? So certainly if they're um, wanting to reach out and have a 
fun late name website, drhotflash.com. <laughs> so that's, I trademarked that name for myself. So I'm very happy to have that. My best friend actually came up with that for me. Um, so drhotflash.com is a great place to gain resources. Even medical professionals, there's a, a link there that can take them to more training. Um, my book is on that website and additional information, blogs and videos and all kinds of things. So I encourage them to visit that website, Dr. Hotflash, so drhotflash.com. We will put that in the show notes so the listeners can, you know, learn more for, in an area that is still very under the radar. Thank you so much, Angela, for coming on and just oh, sharing some insight, insight into <laughs> an area that I think women need to know more about be able to make some decisions from an informed perspective about. So thank you. Thank you, Carissa. Thanks for listening to the Thriving Through Menopause podcast with me, your host, Clarissa Christensen. That was a fantastic insight into testosterone with Dr. Angela Rosa. Might get us thinking and questioning a little bit about what is being said around this hormone. Next week, I'm going to be talking about Qigong and how Qigong can be a benefit to you in perimenopause and menopause. So I look forward to you joining me then. And head on over to my website, clarissachristensen.com to get more resources and sign up to my newsletter, Heart of Menopause. Well, that's all for this episode. See you next time.